Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about world affairs and the people who shape it. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and in this show we discuss topical global issues and have in-depth conversations with personalities in foreign policy. Global Dispatches is presented in partnership with Humanity in Action, an international educational organization, and I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow. My guest today, Wendy Perlman, is an academic who studies the Middle East, but also writes popularly focused narratives that examine everyday life of people caught in the chaos of the region. Her latest book, We Crossed a Bridge and It Trembled, Voices from Syria, is a collection of interviews of Syrians displaced by the war. That book was published by HarperCollins in June, but she used some of the research in that book for peer-reviewed academic papers as well that, among other things, examine the role of fear in revolutionary protests. And in this conversation, we alternate much like Wendy herself between her social science work and her narrative storytelling. We get wonky, but also personal. Wendy discusses how she got interested in the Middle East and how her fascination with Morocco morphed to a passion for researching and studying the Palestinian-Israeli conflict and, of course, the Arab Spring. This is a good conversation. You'll learn a lot about what it's like to study the Middle East as an academic. And we have some good digressions, some interesting digressions about Morocco, the Arab-Israeli conflict, and a term she coined called triadic coercion. So stay tuned. Big thank you to everyone who is emailing me expressing your interest in this career panel that I am holding and hosting. The idea is to have a couple of experts who have had interesting and varied careers in foreign affairs answer your questions about your career goals and your career path. So If you're interested in participating in that, send me an email. I will add you to my list and announce details and how you can participate when those details are available, which will be actually very soon. So send me an email. That conversation will be open to everyone, not just premium members, but if you are a premium member, I have some fun new bonuses for you, including my four-step guide to how to master a foreign policy issue, question, topic in two hours or less. It's a little uh, exercise that I do when I'm trying to bone up on an issue, and I thought I would share it with you. This is actually based on on requests I've had from listeners asking me how I get brushed up on topics before I interview someone, and and this is basically what I do. is is this process that I lay out in my what I'm calling my knowledge guide. So please become a premium member, support the show, get access to that and other bonuses along the way. And now here is my conversation with Wendy Perlman. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. 
So I've been focusing on the Middle East for over 20 years. And my first book was actually a book of interviews with Palestinians. Um, they're talking about their lives and experiences in the second Intifada. And I began that project before I uh, even began graduate school. So I had a sort of long-standing interest in people's stories. Um, given my own studies of the Middle East, I really take seriously, you know, academic studies and archival research and variables and theories and academic scholarly literature and that sort of thing. But that I've been traveling in the Middle East for so long, I, I also have a sense that there's nothing like personal stories to illustrate what politics is really about. What is the human story of politics? What is at stake? That politics and political conflicts and power and struggles for power can make people's lives good in terms of having security, being able to have lives of dignity, being able to fulfill their aspirations, or um, it can make their lives um, filled with suffering and injustice. So I've always had the sense of personal stories as a, as a window into understanding the political and really conveying what's what's at stake. So that that is something that goes back with me for, for many years. So Zoom to 2011, um, it's the Arab uprisings spreading from Tunisia and Egypt and so forth. And as a professor of political scientists, I, like many of my colleagues, are watching these events unfold on my computer screen and in news reports and so forth. And I'm just totally captivated by the Arab uprisings. Um, my time in, in the Arab world over the previous decades had given me this, um, you know, sense that the, these authoritarian regimes seemed unshakable. Most people sort of kept their heads down low and tried to get by and not get in trouble because it seemed that hoping for any other kind of greater change was just unrealistic and would probably only get you landed in jail or something. So when people went out into the streets calling for change, it was this amazing euphoric moment that, of course, you and I'm sure all of your listeners also remember. And I was utterly captivated by it all, and especially the kind of courage that it took for citizens throughout the Arab world to go out into the streets and, and risk their lives sometimes to call for better politics, to demand a better system, to hope for a better kind of a, a, a political arrangement. So at, at this time, I mean, were you passively following these uprisings or did you decide to like jet to, I don't know, Tahrir Square and, <laughs> and, and sort of see these things firsthand? Well, it was um, it was smack in the middle of the semester at Northwestern University, so I, I was. I'm teaching. sure your students would understand. <laughs> yeah, you got to talk to the university administration. No, no. I, which I should say I love Northwestern. They're actually one of a regular uh, advertiser on the show, so I have nothing bad to say about <laughs> right. Northwestern University. Great, great. Well, I got to pay my dues too. So no, it was the, it was the middle of the teaching year, so I couldn't quite take away and and actually I was I was finishing the final page proofs for my second book at the time, so I was barely extracting myself from. Um, uh, a book that I would love to talk about later, my second book, which is about the Palestinian national movement and its use of violence and nonviolent protests. So I was sort of between that and preparing a new class I was teaching on social movements and so forth. So I was absolutely following it as much as I could. And I did some media interviews and, you know, I was living and breathing these events on the news 24 uh, seven as much as I could around my other commitments, but it really wasn't possible for me to just to take off. Um, but I did start following it, did start thinking about, 
about research questions and how I might be able to make an intervention and what I might want to study um, to uh, to use the tools that I have as an academic um, and my sort of the access I might have as somebody who's also dedicated years and years to becoming fluent in Arabic and my sort of sense of doing field work. That's the experience I gained over the years, how I might be able to make an intervention. So watching all of these events what grabbed my attention and really sort of grabbed my heart and, and, and mind like no other place were, were the events unfolding in Syria. I mean, Syria had this reputation of, of a place where this the Assad regime had ruled for decades, the father Hafez and then the son Bashar, um, with uh, ruling through intimidation and fear, corruption, co-optation. I mean, these were the kinds of tools that were used uh, throughout the regimes of the authoritarian Middle East. But Syria was really quite extreme, given the history of brutality, especially in the 1980s when the Muslim Brotherhood launched something of an armed insurrection in the town of Hama, and the Hafez al-Assad Hafez sent in troops and tanks and just flattened half the city, killed tens of thousands of civilians. There had been this sort of cold chill of of fear hanging over the country. Most people didn't even want to speak about politics, maybe not even mention the name of the president. So from given that atmosphere of, of intimidation, of a sense maybe even of resignation to the, the strength of a very strong regime that had a very powerful coercive apparatus and surveillance mechanisms and informants and secret police all over. Given that kind of a space where people said, Syria, people are never going to rise up. At that time in the in February, March 2011, people were calling Syria a kingdom of silence, that this wave would pass from Tunisia to Egypt to Yemen to Bahrain to other countries, but was just going to pass over Syria. So when Syrians also went out into the streets, uh, it just, it, 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 uh, it really captivated me. Uh, and I was really captivated. Needless to say, it sounds like you're probably very surprised, if nothing else, I, right? I was surprised. And, and, you know, now that I've done interviews with hundreds of Syrians, it's always fascinating when Syrians tell me that they themselves were surprised. I mean, one of the interviews I ask uh, Syri Syrians, as I've done these interviews over the, the years, was, you know, did you expect there to be an uprising in Syria? And some people say, yeah, I thought there would be one because we were suffering the same things that those other countries were that saw protests. And other people would say, no way. We were just too scared. We were too quiet. I never thought it would happen in Syria. So it took a lot of Syrians by surprise, too. So I was both surprised and in many ways awed by the courage that it took for folks to go out into the streets. I mean, when you see these YouTube videos of the first protest, people are shaking, they're crying, they're just overwhelmed by the emotion Um the feeling of, of pride, of euphoria, of disbelief themselves that they were out in the street actually calling for change. So it was on an emotional level and a personal level so moving and on an intellectual level so fascinating to me to, to think, how did people overcome the fear to go out so and protest? So, so that that's 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 my my next question. I, yes. I know that your your book is published in in a popular by, by a popular yes. publisher, Harper Collins. But I know that you've also adapted the findings that you have concluded from these interviews that are included in the book to academic, like peer reviewed academic papers as right. well. Um, one of them takes a look at the role of of fear, yes. uh, right in in sort of the, the 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 Syrian uprising. So, what through your interviews did you learn uh, about sort of fear as a political force? 
Oh, that's, that's a great question. So one is, I mean, one of the things that got me going with this project was this expression that was really ubiquitous in Syria, but 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 you heard throughout the other Arab countries that saw uprisings as well was when people would say, you know, how did this happen? What was this? What were these uprisings about? And the expression was in Qasr Hajj al Khawf, which in Arabic is basically saying that we broke the barrier of fear, or the barrier of fear broke. And and that for me that expression was just like a world of 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 politics inside those few few words it was an indication of the role of fear in upholding this authoritarian regime for the decades prior to the rebellion it was an indication of what the rebellion meant on a personal and psychological level for people they weren't just calculating what are the chances of success or so forth they were personally breaking through something that felt like a wall um, not knowing what was on the other side, but just breaking through it. Um, so the, the article looks at those two phases, the, the role that fear uh, played in sustaining the political system, an unjust authoritarian system, the role that some sort of overcoming fear or mustering the courage to act despite fear um, played in, in the uprisings. And something that people always assured to me was, you know, it wasn't that we ever ceased to be afraid. You knew that you could die. There were there were policemen there with their guns pointed. You knew that if you went out in the protest, there might be a knock on your door the next day from a secret police officer saying, we saw that you were at the protest. And the book is filled with anecdotes of this, of this sort. I remember one man telling me, you know, I had a friend who went to a protest and everyone was singing and dancing and she- Panting, and you know, people lock arms and they sway together. So my friend locked arms with somebody on the right and locked arms with somebody on the left and was singing and so forth. And then those people on the right and the left slowly guided him to a police car. And it turned out that they were undercover agents. This is the kind of danger that 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 um, accompanied every single step of this uprising. People said that, you know, there were undercover folks who were filming, acting like they were activists who were filming, but they were you know, informants. And that film was then later taken to the secret police and, and the security forces. And people would get a knock on their door saying, we have, we have film of you being, of you begin a demonstration. So this is the kind of, of danger that accompanied every step of the way. So Syrians not only had to muster a tremendous amount of courage to be able to go and protest, but a tremendous amount of resourcefulness to circumvent these dangers that Every every step of the way. So when I talk to people about how they managed to get protests off the ground, you know, people would say, if we were going to have a protest, we needed a PA system, you know, for the microphone for somebody who would be be leading the chance. But then we had to, you know, hide that PA system because the secret police afterwards or the security forces would be searching for that microphone. And if you were found with a PA system, you were going to get arrested, and your your family would too. So the the resourcefulness, the strategy, the thinking the kind of community solidarity that it took for people to come together to pull all of this off, um, to pull off those first really tentative demonstrations, to sustain those long enough and help them spread across the country to make this a national uprising, and then to be able to keep it going 
when the regime cracked down with all of the tools at its disposal, putting putting cities under siege, and then the, the countryside would come and deliver bread and milk for the city that wasn't able to to get in any any goods, and, and neighbors sharing food with each other if somebody was able to get things going, and the way people communicated when when communication networks were, were, were cut down, and the way that expatriate Syrians, the diaspora in other countries came through to help however they could. I mean, it's really a miraculous 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 story so um so it's a pretty terrible ending though with a pretty terrible well so, yeah well, a terrible so, ending that's ongoing so, so that was, yeah. well, well i mean that, that kind of leads me to question i mean i i know that you have interviewed people subsequently in in refugee camps who've been displaced by this crisis i mean is there any sense of of like regret uh that um you know that that the decisions that they made uh you know although not their fault like they, they weren't like the ones violently cracking down, um, led to the dissolution of the country and, you know, the, the, the terrible humanitarian situation that exists to this day. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's, it is an absolute emotional roller coaster and every kind of emotion you can imagine giving, given, um, a situation that is so, um, intensely dramatic that is so, that has been so heroic at times and so tragic, um, in, at, it, in where it has arrived, you can imagine every type of emotion, and you know it's a diverse, it's a diverse country, and humans are also diverse. So you have every range of of emotions. So these interviews I'm I'm doing to say we go full circle. So I I back in, in in you know in Chicago, Illinois, watching my computer screen, and I decided that I I want to capture human stories of what this has been like. And at the time when I began, I was still very interested in this sort of this heroic moment of the protests. So I went to Jordan in 2012 and, and interviewed Syrians there who had been displaced. By that time, by the time I kind of was able to plan my research trip in 2000, summer 2012, it was already too dangerous to go inside Syria. So very quickly, I began on uh, focusing my interviews on displaced Syrians, collecting their stories of of what life had been like in in Syria, um, the moment of protest, but also collecting their stories of what life was like in Syria before 2011 to sort of bring to life this lived experience of authoritarianism. Um, and then I went back to Jordan in 2013 and moved on to Turkey. And then I was in Turkey again, 2015, 16. And then I moved on to Europe in 2016. So it's been over four years of interviewing something like over 300 um displaced Syrians really across countries in the Middle East. Oh yeah, somewhere in there I went to Lebanon and then I went to the UAE and you know I just and then I interviewed even interviewed Syrians in Chicago. Sort of everywhere I could, I would just uh, find people and ask if I could turn on a tape recorder and record their their memories and their reflections and their feelings and their thoughts. And over the years you've seen this sort of arc from first a tremendous amount of optimism and hope. When I first began interviewing Syrians in Jordan in 2012, everybody had their bags packed. They were ready for this regime to fall any second they thought they'd be going back home. And they didn't even speak much about the refugee experience per se, because nobody thought it would last very long. It was sort of like, we're temporarily here. Things got dangerous. We had to escape, but um, we expect to go home. And every year that's gone by, the stories have shifted to be um, really less and less hopeful, um, more and more uh, sort of dominated by feelings of despair. Um, the people's hopes of returning home have dwindled. The The degree to which their stories focus more on the refugee part of their experience, how they became displaced, 
what their lives are like now and what their view is of the future and and including how to make lives for themselves now in exile that's something that's very much increased over over time but well, you guys have to the, sorry your earlier well, no. question yeah. Well, well let, let me let me follow that, follow that thread for for yeah, one for one second because so much in here. Yeah. you talked about you know the role of of fear in kind yeah. of the the politics of the situation. What's the role of despair in in the current sort of politics of of Syria? It's it's enormous, enormous. So even I mean, this first came clear to me my my second summer of interviewing in 2013. So there was someone when I started in 2012, I became quite friendly with this um, uh, a Syrian man was just very helpful for me in, in introducing me to people to interview and so forth. And at that time, a lot of my interviews were focused on on breaking the barrier of fear, how people went out to protest. So when I went back in 2013, he kind of looked at me and he was like. Wendy, why are you here again? <laughs> and I said, oh, I'm continuing with these interviews about breaking the barrier of fear. And he just shook his head and he said, you can't keep asking people that question. Ask them about despair. So this was this was early 2000, or I guess maybe July, August 2013. And that's when it hit me that that moment of, of, of euphoria and the liberation it felt to go out and call for change had already become something like ancient history for the people I was interviewing. And from there, the sense of despair has gotten uh, larger and larger. But then it's also, it sort of arcs because some people that I met in, in 2013 who were really sort of overcome with the despair of, of the sense of a, a revolution for which they'd sacrificed so much, sort of coming to terms with uh, that maybe it, it would not succeed and the regime would win or the country's being destroyed and so forth. A lot of those folks are now in Europe and they still, you know, their heart still breaks for their country each day as things get worse and worse. And for them, there are a lot of people are wrestling with feelings of, of regret or even guilt of activists who say, are we responsible for what happened? Did we in our naivete and youthfulness go out and think we could make change, are we responsible for the total and complete destruction of the country and so many deaths and millions of displaced and world heritage sites that have been turned to rubble and, um, yeah, the utter devastation. So there's feelings, sometimes there are feelings of regret, sometimes there are feelings of guilt. Some people say, no, we still had to do it. That, that we couldn't have lived forever in this dictatorship. Other people say, well, yeah, it was a cold, lonely, indignified life, but maybe it was better than, than what we've, where we wound up. But at the same time, some of those folks are now in Sweden and in Germany. They've married, they've had children, and as much as they are looking back to Syria— they also have to move on with their lives and their lives are now consumed with learning new languages, the paperwork of asylum, moving on, raising children. So it's it, it the stories that I've collected follow the arc of the collective Syrian trajectory. But they're also the personal trajectories of human beings who uh, whose lives also move on as, as difficult and pained as their own grappling with the events is. So is there like a conclusion? <laughs> that that leader that readers could draw from your from your book um i don't know i mean i don't know if there's a big a big 
conclusion because, you know, the book I write, I have an introduction that's in my voice that provides um, some historical context on the events that that the speakers talk about. But otherwise, the the book is is, is 100% in the words of uh, the testimonials that I collected. So there are chapters on what life was like was in Syria before 2011. There's um, a chapter about how the, the uprising began, then how uh, people co- uh, dealt with uh, repression on the part of the regime, how the opposition took up arms and became an armed rebellion. And then finally, the last part is on how people left and why they left and what their lives are like as refugees. But within those chapters, it's organized as name, story, name, story, name, story. It's 100% just a mosaic of excerpts from the stories that I've collected that try to bring all these these disparate voices together to make something of a collective story. And some of the reflections of from these testimonials are three or four pages of an extended anecdote of somebody really telling a story of what happened to them. And some are one or two sentences with a sort of this almost like a poetic reflection on the situation. So the people I interviewed, you know, very few of them have definitive conclusions about what's where what any of this means and where it's headed it's still a drama that is completely unfolding and and i think most of these folks would be very hesitant to predict the future because they feel like their lives have already been transformed drastically multiple times in the past six years whatever their lives were about and who they thought they were in the world and how they envisioned their future has has change and started over from zero several times. So they wouldn't probably no longer want to draw large conclusions because it's still it's still an un, un, yeah. unfolding. And the book captures that sense. So it doesn't end with a conclusion because Syria is still not at a conclusion. Well, I was going to say, it's, it's sort yeah. of like where where I am as a journalist, where you are as, as, a, as an expert studying this issue. Yeah. I mean, we, it's, it's sort of hard to predict still. Totally, totally. Um, so I, I would love to switch gears and, and learn yes. a little bit more about at you and, and how you became interested in the Middle East and in this line of work. So where are you from? Where um, were you born? I, I, was, I was born in Oak Park, Illinois, the suburbs of Chicago. And when I was 10, my family moved to Nebraska. Ah, I lived, my I lived wife there. was also born in Oak Park. Actually, she was born oh, right next to Oak Park in River oh, Forest. Oh, very cool. Yes. Very cool. Um, yeah, so I, I go I, there so, often. Oh, that's great. That's great. Well, I was spent um, age 10 through 18 um, in Lincoln, Nebraska. So I kind of consider myself a Nebraskan, but I'm, I'm a Midwesterner anyway, you you shake it. So, I mean, growing up, I mean, were, were conversations about the Middle East a key focus in, in your family? Absolutely not. I, mean, I am going to absolutely not. <laughs> so, nor did I have any consciousness of the Middle East. What I did develop a sort of an early consciousness of was issues of, of human rights. So, I became active in Amnesty International at the age of fourteen. Um, after I quit um, four or five years of competitive childhood gymnastics and found myself with like fifty out three hours a week when I was no longer exercising. So, I, I discovered human rights and I joined my local Amnesty International chapter. What and, were the big issues back then? You, you know, I mean, it was, I mean, I was, I was, I was 14 or so at the time. Um, I mean, we, we, uh, like most local amnesty chapters, we adopted a prisoner of conscience. We wrote letters. There was a lot of mobilization around, um, uh, ad- opposing the death penalty at that time. I mean, that was a sort of a more local issue for us because Nebraska had the death penalty. So it was the sort of, you know, I guess this was early eighties. It was, um, the standard issues of, of prisoners of conscience and political prisoners. Um, so I began writing letters like everyone else. 
started sometime, I sort of fell into the position of becoming head of the local Amnesty International chapter. I then founded a chapter at my high school when I moved on to high school from junior high. And so I be, developed that sort of interest in um, in human rights. And, and my, um, you know, my, my mother was a social worker, so had a good sort of social work conscience. We, you know, we sponsored Cambodian refugees who lived with us as a family, um, even when we were in Illinois. So I think I, I imbued a certain, those, those types of, of values, which have actually come back to me now, now that I'm work doing this, the interviews with Syrian refugees and have started to volunteer with refugees in the city of Chicago, and even have sort of connected with a woman that my mother helped, you know, worked with refugees with in the in the 80s in, in Chicago. I'm now working with with regard to Syrians in Chicago. So I've sort of come full circle in that sense. So I think I imbued a sense of, of a real consciousness about human rights and humanitarian crises, but there was zero specific interest in the Middle East per se. So at, where, did, at, where did that come from? So, so, yeah. so yeah, so I'd never been outside the United States. You know, I'm a kid who grew up in Nebraska. I went away to, to college at, at Brown University and wanted to spend my junior semester abroad or junior year abroad. And that would have been my, my first time traveling outside the United States. And I said to myself, you know, I feel like the entire continent of Africa is just not well represented in my education. I haven't really taken classes on Africa or African literature. I feel like it, I don't really know much about this entire huge, you know, corner of the of the world. So I started looking at study abroad programs, and I saw a program in Morocco, in North Africa. And I said to myself, you know, if I did a semester in Morocco, I could also do a semester in Spain, and um, you know, keep practicing Spanish, which I'd been studying for years, and have two very different experiences on a single plane ticket. So that's what took me to the Arab world for the mm. first time. It was a college semester abroad in Morocco, which I chose basically on the cheap. So um, it was, talk about, you know, not a well thought out sense of destiny. Um, I had um, had no background in the Middle East at all. I'd never studied Arabic. I'd never really thought about the Arab world. I went to North Africa and I got totally hooked. And probably because it was, as my best friend always says to me, it was, you know, the, the furthest away from Lincoln, Nebraska I had ever been was Morocco. So um, I got hooked. I, I lived with a local family. I started studying Arabic. It was absolutely fascinating to me. I mean, it wasn't always easy, um, but it was it was captivating in a way that I felt like I wanted to continue studying. I wanted to continue studying this language. I wanted to get a handle and understand things. So I, I finished college. I, I focused on Well, do you on remember like being yeah. in, in yeah. Morocco that first yeah. time when it all kind of yeah. clicked? Was there like a moment yeah. when you realized that, wow, this is something that I want to devote myself to? You know, I don't, I don't remember anything of that sort. And I don't know if it happened or if it was that I got home and I couldn't get it out of my head. You know, that um, that it just it stuck with me. I loved the language and I loved the challenge of the language and I wanted to stick with it until I could really speak with people and I could really understand what was happening. I was also captivated by the politics of, of Morocco. That was in the mid-90s. It was still under the time of Hassan II, the previous king of Morocco, in, which was a, a, a harsher, more cruel um, sort of more total authoritarian regime than than Morocco is today. Um, We're on number four, right? Like, isn't it? <laughs> no, it's his son now. So that's so yeah. This is, this is Hassan the second. Now okay. there's Muhammad. His, his so that was my also. It was not just my first contact. It was my first time in uh, society and a culture and a religion that was the furthest away from what I had had grown up with in the Midwest. But it was also my first contact with a political life in an authoritarian regime and what the experience was like for citizens who felt um, in Morocco at that time, there was this dark, thick cloud of a sense of of um, 
of shortened aspirations. You would talk to people and you could feel a kind of frustration of people sensing that you couldn't, would never really make much of yourself in that country. If you didn't have connections, um, or, or weren't, you know, could use bribes or something, you just weren't going to get very far. And the sense of sort of clipped freedom, uh, you know, uh, stunted horizons. It was, I felt on this human level, how, how an unfair, unaccountable regime could make the lives of ordinary people just so much more closed and um, limited and uh, unfair than they is, needed. Is to there be. like a story or an anecdote from that time that, that illustrates that, um, that dynamic? Um, I wish I, I had one. I, I can't think of a particular anecdote. There just felt like there was a cloud over the country. But one, one anecdote I had in sort of my own relationship to this issue was, was because there was such frustration, I thought this is a country that is, is going to explode. People are so upset. They feel so insulted by the way power is exercised over them, um, that this is a country that people are about to, to have a revolution because they just can't take but they didn't anymore. But they didn't. So the fascinating thing is I got back then to the United States, like, you know, any good student, I read this classic book of about Moroccan politics, um, in which that's called Commander of the Faithful by John Waterbury, in which John Waterbury writes, Morocco is ever on the edge of an explosion that never comes. And these words were written in the late 1970s. So this was also eye opening for me, because it was sort of my first contact with authoritarian politics, that something that could seem so utterly unsustainable, a regime that everybody hated, could be sustained for decade after decade after decade. Well, well, yeah. to, to, to then and like, how, how did Morocco escape the fates <laughs> of like Tunisia or Libya or Egypt and, and uh, or Syria in in the Arab Spring? Yeah, ultimately, there's they have a leader who's I think much more much more clever. That so there there has one that Morocco when when the the last king died and and it, and it, the younger king took over did make certain openings. I mean, it's not it's still not um, a fully there's there is a monarchy that that exercises predominant power, but has made various reforms over the years. And as Tunisia and Egypt were were you know exploding and in in, in uprisings for people calling for the overthrow of the regime. The Moroccan king um, was very clever about opening up with a new constitution, with competitive elections and so forth. There was a Moroccan protest movement that that tried to call people out to the streets to call for even more reform and more of a move towards a constitutional monarchy. But essentially, those in power responded with reform, some concessions, um, and also the knowledge that if we are if we use violence against protesters and we kill unarmed protesters, this will escalate and explode and become a radical or potentially become a more radical regime. So responding, a leader that responded with some sort of meaningful concessions, I mean, not perfect uh, democratic concessions, but still meaningfully uh, uh, ones that do, do some sort of uh, more meaningful sharing of power and, and so forth, rather than reacting with force, was able to save the country from bloodshed and destruction. And in Syria, the, the, there was a regime that seemed to think, you can't, if you give an inch to people, they will take a foot or who knows what, um, that if you, if you scare people and kill people, they will recoil like they have in the past. And used violence, and it totally backfired. People then—I mean, one of the speakers in my book is a is a 
a young protester who said, you know, if they had just let us go out in the streets and chant, we would have chanted forever and people eventually would have ignored us and gotten tired of us and we would have gone back. But when they started to kill people and the very first sort of that would begin the mass first mass street uh, uprising or protest in in the town of Dada in Syria in March 18, 2011, ended when security forces came and shot people and two died instantly and a third died later from his wounds. The, you know, there were immediately martyrs and people came out in, in droves to the funeral the next day. And that every funeral led to a new protest and every protest led to a new funeral. And it brought the country back to the point of no of no return. So you can look at the entire Middle East and see how different different authoritarian leaders mm -hmm. learned, whether they learned the right lessons or the wrong lessons and protesters learned. And the, the region so, is interconnected. In that so way. so you, you come back from Morocco yeah. uh, from a study abroad program uh, right. inspired by the culture, yeah. the language, the politics. And, and how did you then go about, um, you know, making this your, your, your life's work, your, your career? What were your steps? Great thing. So I, um, so that was my junior year. I came back my senior year and I wrote a senior honors thesis on a colonial war between Spain and Morocco. I graduated and I got a Fulbright grant to go to Spain to study the situation of Moroccan immigrants in Spain. So this sort of Spain-Morocco connection was the, the, you know, the lens of my life for three full years. Um, I then began in, a, in the PhD program at, um, in, in, in political science at Georgetown University. Um, I stayed there for three semesters and then decided you know, I wanted to to transfer to another university that I, I wanted to give it a shot somewhere else. So I spent three semesters there, which was enough for me to get a master's degree. I put in transfer applications. At this point, my life is my studies are still totally focused on North Africa. Um, I was the person in class who would always, you know, regardless of the topic, raise her hand and say, "Well, in Morocco." And yeah. Be like, "Oh God, <laughs> Wendy goes with Morocco again. Like it's the only country in the world." So anyway, I I, I I'm, I'm um I have my I'm ready to leave Georgetown. I'm waiting for my transfer applications to come in. So um, essentially, you know, you, when you study Middle East politics, although my focus is on North Africa, all roads eventually lead to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It's like, you know, it is this one of the, 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 I guess, you know, uh, centerpieces, cores of, of, of the Middle East. It's very difficult to understand the region with, without it. So I hear about this program and I think, well, I'm going to go on this trip. Um, to Israel. I'll spend say, 10 days sort of traveling around Israel. Um, and I extend my ticket and I go to study in the West Bank for okay. a semester. You, then I studied at Birzeit University um, in the village of Birzeit near Ramallah in um, January to June 2000 and, and, and worked at a human rights organization in Ramallah. So January, same, June 2000, that's that's just right before the, the second exact, intifada. Exactly. Exactly. It is it, in retrospect. Each of these were the waning days of the of the peace process. But for, for important for my story is, I get to the West Bank and it's like I forget Morocco ever existed. I fell so deep into the mud of Palestine that and, and in Israel that I um I I dropped North Africa completely. And the next ten years of my life, as my grandmother always tells me, were all Palestine all the time. I like became an all Palestine all the time channel. Um, it was it captivated me personally. Well, what was it about? What was it about that that so captivated you personally? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I guess I mean it's the both. It's for me, it's it's the both the it's the political and the personal and, and the intellectual sort of um, coming t together. So, if what was interesting to me about Morocco was this this lived experience of of an intense kind of politics, the lived experience of authoritarianism and sort of the clipped horizons of an unfree regime. You know, Palestine was a place where politics mattered, e even 
even more dramatically and intensely. If there's water on the faucets, what milk you buy in the grocery store, if you can move around, every aspect of daily life had the imprint of a very complicated political conflict. So it's a place where politics matters in a way that I had never seen before. Every person and the pe- every person and their families and the family and the neighborhood and somebody who'd become a prisoner and somebody who had been killed and somebody who had lost his property and so forth. It was it was everywhere in a way that um, I found, you know, it, on the human dimension of 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 seeing um, unnecessary suffering and being moved by that, and the political dimension of of people having a a cause uh, for of national liberation, of independence, of wanting to overthrow occupation, and so forth. Uh, the complexity of identity and religion and, uh, and nationhood and so forth. It was just it was politics come to life with the most vibrant of colors in a way that really, really, really mattered for people's very survival. Um, so it was, it was, yeah, well, it was totally, ever, did, I mean, did you ever feel out of place or did people look at you suspiciously being like an American, you know, living and studying in the West bank? It was, it was not unusual to have American study abroad kids mm-hmm. I studied at, at Beers 8 university. I think there were maybe 40, 50 or so Americans and a lot of Europeans too, who came to Beers 8 every semester to study. So I was just another, you know, international. It was also given it was the time of the sort of the last years of the Oslo peace process. There was this huge, um, you know, boon of, of NGOs, non-governmental organizations and international development organizations and so forth of every stripe um, in the West Bank and Gaza and especially centered in, in Ramallah. So um, so to have internationals who were there interested in human rights or development or in some way involved in those sectors was also not not um, uncommon. So so that in that sense, it wasn't that un- you know, people were, were quite, quite used to that. And, and, um, and especially Ramallah also has a very large expatriate Palestinian population. So everybody's got a cousin in New Jersey or so forth. And they're the, the Palestinian American returnees who can, would come back every summer. Mm-hmm. And I guess the last element of that is there was generally a sense that if as an American, you were in the West Bank, you were there, if either out of some sense of solidarity or at the very least, you weren't afraid of Palestinians. Like you probably didn't think all Palestinians were terrorists when you were living with one. So there was, I mean, people who really looked at Palestinians with suspicion and or anger or uh, racism or so forth weren't living in the West Bank. So you, um, so there was. And that was well, it was probably like a time where you know, you know, politically, like you know, the, the Clinton administration was, you know, far more proactive. On, mm-hmm. on this case than, say, the Bush administration, which I, I take was probably just coming in as, as you were uh, as you were entering um, as you were there. Yeah, no, I mean, because I was there. I was there January to June 2000. So um, so it was it was still. Yeah, it was bef- it was before before Bush Bush came in. Um, yeah. So but in, in that sense, there was there was nothing but hospitality mm-hmm. and welcomeness and and um, and a positive, yeah, a positive sense of welcoming from from Palestinians. So I, you know, I took, I took classes at a university. Um, I, with, and at that point, my Arabic was good enough that I was allowed to take sort of classes in Arabic with other Palestinian students, just take two regular, um, poly political science classes rather than, you know, being in sort of the English classes with, with foreigners. And, um, and I started volunteering at a, at a human rights organization. And that became a very important part of my experience. I was doing translations for their annual human rights report and so forth. Um, so Palestinians were my, my classmates, my friends, my colleagues, my teachers, um, my landlord and so forth. And it was, it was just, it was a tremendously 
positive, welcoming so, experience. So how did these experiences um, come to inform your book about the Second Intifada? And, and I think mm -hmm. it's probably useful to give people a little bit of, of a background of, of like what sparked that, that Second Intifada, that, that uprising that occurred. Mm -hmm. It was like 2002, right? No, it was, it was, it was fall 2000. Fall so 2000. Okay. September 2000. Mm -hmm. So, so one thing is that I've actually written two books about the second, well, one book about the second intifada and another book that looks at the Palestinian, the history of the Palestinian national movement over really the entire course of the, of the 20th century. So the first book, um, so I was studying in the West Bank. Then I, I, um, my transfer applications got in. I, I was accepted to the PhD program in political science at Harvard, but I was able to defer that and, and go to uh, study Arabic for a year in, in Egypt, um, this sort of advanced Arabic language program. So I was in Egypt when the second intifada began. And the second intifada, I mean, this, this, people sometimes refer to the spark. Was it Ariel Sharon visited uh, the Al-Aqsa Mosque Temple Mount um, sort of compound? And that was sort of, you know, was a, was a straw breaking the camel's back. And the camel's back was caving under really, um, you know, seven years of, of negotiations and the peace process that had failed everybody's expectations. Is it, Israelis thought, you know, we allowed Arafat and the PLO to come back to the territories to create this new self-governing apparatus called the Palestinian Authority, negotiating towards peace. And instead, we got suicide bombings and terror, and the Palestinians aren't really ready for a real peace. Mm -hmm. Palestinians thought, you know, we agreed to a, a, a peace agreement, basically recognizing Israel in its in you know, seventy-eight percent of mandate Palestine, hoping there'd be an independent state in the West Bank and Gaza Strip, and instead we got increased settlements and increased checkpoints and decreased um, freedom of movement. And and Israel doesn't want a real peace agreement; it just wants you know to outsource the occupation and have the PA do it for it. So everyone was disappointed with the with the peace negotiations, and everybody thinking it was the the other side that was really to blame. And that sort of unsustainable situation reached ahead with the Camp David II summit in August two. That Israeli narrative is that then Prime Minister Ehud Barak left no stone unturned for peace and Arafat showed his true face in, 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 in turning away the most generous offer and the Palestinian narrative is even that most generous offer was still far from a, a contiguous viable Palestinian state with a capital in Jerusalem and reaching a resolution to the refugee problem. So protests began, they became violent. There was um, Israeli uh, sh shooting with bullets and Palestinian deaths. Palestinians were throwing stones. And then within the first week, Palestinian police force uh, officers, the armed police of the Palestinian Authority became involved also shooting. Israel says, this, these police, we allowed them to be trained and get weapons under the peace agreement, and now they're turning our weapons against us. Israel responds with even more force, and things escalate out of control into what started as a popular uprising, becoming something of a semi-war that then just escalated and escalated. And I think we're still living the the effects of that. Clearly, the violence died down after Arafat died 2004, and Abu Mazen comes to power in 2005, and there's a new Palestinian election that that brings Hamas to power in 2006. So there are multiple um, political somersaults. And of course, in Israel, this political situation is going through as many somersaults. But it's essentially the end of the peace process as we knew it, and um, leading to the violence, extreme violence, and now the kind of um, semi-violent, you know, lull, but stalemate that we have 
today with lots of other complications thrown in with the splitting of the West Bank and Gaza Strip and so forth. So so um, because I had been in the Palestinian territories right before this uh, turning point of the Second Intifada began, um, I was again, when, when things, the place that I knew that was relatively peaceful and quiet and still had some hope that there could be a state, um, as sort of an aside, the human rights organization that I worked for in Ramallah is, was called, um, the Palestinian independent commission for citizens rights. That was actually meant to be something like the ombudsman for the Palestinian authority, sort of like a human rights, a grievance council that Palestinian citizens could file complaints against the Palestinian authority. You know, the, the, you know, the police mm-hmm. insulted me or I didn't get my paycheck or that sort of thing. So it was a human rights group, but it was very much in the spirit of state building. And at the time, there was a sense of there is a Palestinian state building project. We are still on the road to creating an independent Palestinian state. So all that was still there's a the sense of, of possibility, although the frustrations with the with the um, the peace process were pretty clear by that point, too. So. Um, so when everything then, you know, blew up in violence, my first instinct, this was me watching this happen from Egypt, was I want to capture personal stories. I was watching myself, the American media and the kind of narrative at the time was you know, the Palestinians have put have put uh, Israel under siege. And this is all Arafat's fault, who's shown, so, shown his true face. And I thought, okay, Palestinian society is millions of individuals. This is a story that's a lot more complicated than Arafat. What what is this like for for Palestinians who are experiencing what was really pretty you know violent Israeli repression at the time in terms of sieges and beginning aerial bombardment and so forth? So the first chance I got, um, I I went back to the Palestinian territories. I spent about a month during our you know our winter break in the semester or the academic year in Cairo. Um, and I interviewed every Palestinian I could um, about their stories, about what the Second Intifada was like, but in the larger context of their lives. So I, you know, I, I recorded and recorded and recorded, and I got back. And it took then several years amidst me starting graduate school and other things to be able to put that together in the form of a book. But it was then published in 2003 with the title Occupied Voices, Stories of Everyday Life from the Second Intifada. So that was that book. And then I made, wrote my dissertation also on Palestinian politics from a much more scholarly, traditional academic lens. And that became my, my, my PhD thesis and then became the second book that was published in 2011, which is called Violence, Nonviolence, and the Palestinian National Movement. And I, I have to imagine that, like um, your 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 book on Syria, that you combined the idea of of sort of taking narrative stories and and sort of making turning them into something that's like approaches like an academic uh, uh, sort of quality kind of thesis and, and work. Yeah, I mean this 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 new book on Syria it um it reads almost like a book of of short stories and some of these very short fragments almost sound poetic. So there's a real literary quality to it. And again as as I said my the introduction provides historical background that's in my voice. The rest of it is 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 completely in the voices of these students. So it's interesting in that sense, my job was something of a curator of like an exhibit of choosing this, this fragment from this testimonial should go Mm -hmm. here. That should be followed by something else. And that should be followed by something else. So for me, I was the backstory. I'm sort of like the scaffolding of, of the building and my political science background is sort of the scaffolding too, because I have a sense of this, the arc of the story that emerged 
over the course of four years of interviewing that I could see the connections and the similarities and the themes that came in interview after interview. So it was sort of the way these individual narratives coalesced into mm -hmm. a collective narrative. But there's also my political science background of thinking, what do American readers need to know? What should they know to understand Syria? To not just be moved by personal stories, but to have a deepened understanding. So that's the political scientist in me. Can, um, mm -hmm. Yeah, please. Um, before I let you, because I know we're about to run out of time, can, can yes. I ask you about triadic coercion? Oh my gosh. First of all, did you coin that name? Yes, my co-author and I did. It sounds so, like, um, a, like a punk band. That's, that's, Oh, well, thank you. Maybe, maybe <laughs> that, maybe name. that. Thank you. So triadic coercion is, um, cause that's is, like your next big research project, right? It's actually, um, it? um, it is a complete manuscript. And as we speak, it is before the editorial board at Columbia university press so that we, um, it is, it is a complete, it is actually a, a complete book. So this has been my side project over the years, as well as that with my, my co-author Boaz at Silly, uh, who's a professor of international relations at American University in Washington, D.C. We both had postdoctoral fellowships together, 2007, 2008, at the Kennedy School at Harvard, and started talking about you know, a peculiarity that was interesting to us. We ended up writing an article about it and then transformed the article into a full book. So triadic coercion essentially is about, um, this shows you how different. I go from personal narratives mm -hmm. to this kind of IR theory slash punk band stuff, but... Um, <laughs> So triadic coercion, essentially, it's, it's, it's our examination of this, um, uh, this conflict dynamic in which one state uh, um, uses pressure against a second state that is a host to non-state actors to coerce it to stop non-state actors in its border. So it's basically a case study of Israel over 100 years with all of its neighbors. So when, for example, Palestinian groups were in Egypt um, carrying out cross-border attacks on Israel in the 1950s and 60s, and Israel would put pressure on the Egyptian government saying, rein in those Palestinians, stop Palestinians, you are the state, it's your responsibility to stop non-state groups from your borders. And Israel did the same thing with Syrian Palestinian groups in the 70s and 60s and 70s, or with Jordan in the 1950s, or with Lebanon and Hezbollah as, as late as, you know, 2006, Israel bombing the, the installations of the state of Lebanon saying, rein in, stop Hezbollah. And even to the same thing with the Palestinian Authority vis-a-vis -vis Hamas. So it's that sort of triangular three-party relations, in this case between Israel, an Arab state, and the non-state actor on the Arab state's territory. And the question is, um, under what conditions is it effective for Israel to try to, to bomb the state and put strikes and pressure on the state? And um, and what explains Israel's use of that, that um, strategy, even in conditions in which we see it as being ineffective, especially when it's used and targeted against weak host states? Um, so uh, like Israel pressuring the Palestinian Authority to rein in Hamas? Precisely, precisely. Mm -hmm. So what well, did you find? Well, our, our argument is that usually in international... Um, uh, international conflicts, one, one state wants its adversary to be weak. The weaker the adversary is vis-a-vis -vis the state, uh, the more you are able to coerce it um, and pressure it to do its bidding. But in this situation, paradoxically, if the host state is too weak, it can't fulfill the coercer's demands and actually 
you know, affect any power against a non-state actor. In some cases, the non-state actor is stronger than the state itself or the state, given its own internal political divisions, it's just too politically costly to um, to try to repress a non-state actor. It could lead to, um, you know, uh, lead to problems in keeping together its own coalitions or its own elites it has to have on board to sustain its regime and so forth. So the argument is that um, it, this, this attempt of triadic coercion can only succeed if the host state is of a certain amount of strength. Mm -hmm. And if it is used against a weak state, it is bound to fail. So our critique of Israel in many ways in this work is that Israel seems to use it against weak states again and again. And part of our question is, is it, is it, is it when Israel put, says to Lebanon, we're going to bomb you unless you stop Hezbollah. And Lebanon, the Lebanese government says, but we're weaker than Hezbollah. What do you expect us to do? You know, what is what is the thinking and the strategy? And is Israel maybe carrying out strikes because of a, a, its own sense that it, it needs to carry them out for its own its own sake. It needs to show that it's doing something strong, not that it actually um, has reason to believe that that will make Israelis safer or lead to any de-escalation de of violence. And it's probably like, presumably there's some implications for this research on how like the United States might deal with like Pakistan vis-a-vis -vis the Taliban or, or other kinds of, kinds of issues. Fascinating. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. We have a small comparative case studies with, with India and Pakistan and even with, with Turkey and the PKK. So, so yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of mm. nice. My life as a political scientist, I can have these personal narratives, which is what I really love, but I keep my, you know, my keep one foot in, in the world of more standard conventional uh, social science as well. Well, well, great. Well, thank you so much for your time and, and for sharing these stories and, and your work. This was great. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And I hope well, people will check out the book. We crossed a bridge and it trembled. Voices from Syria out in a couple of weeks. On, on, on June 1st, right? June June sixth. June sixth. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's uh, it's been a real labor of love. So I hope people uh, enjoy it and learn something from. By the it. book, everyone. By the book. I'll have, <laughs> I'll have a link to it up on the website. Awesome. Thank you. I appreciate well, thank you. It. I appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Wendy. And if you are a new listener to the show, welcome. I've had a lot of new listeners over the last few weeks, few months. So thank you so much for finding the show and, and sticking with it. If you are a regular listener, well, thank you for being a regular listener. And please do share the podcast with your friends, your uh, fake friends on social media, and your colleagues, and, and, and anyone who you think might be interested in this kind of topic. Oh, speaking of, of social media, follow us on Instagram and on Facebook. And you can follow me on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg. All right. See you next time. Bye. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of Humanity in Action.